guys can be seated. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Community Christian. My name is Nathan. I'm on staff here at the church, and uh, we are continuing in this series, learning from uh, what we're calling the King Jesus Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the stories that we choose to tell uh, as a society, the kind of history we choose to remember, the kind of stories that kind of fill our movies and all of these different kinds of things, they say a lot about what we choose to value. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed that every kid's movie seems to have kind of the same central message, which is you should just be yourself. Don't, don't, don't try and fit into a mold. Just be yourself. And, you know, I used to teach students a lot, and I'd say, you know, that's a great message, except for you. You should try and be somebody different. But the majority of you, yeah, maybe that's fine. Be yourself. Except for you, you could try for someone better. Uh, but we tell, that's the greatest good that we seem to think is just be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. This, what kind of people we choose to feature, what kind of actions or choices that we consider heroic or villainous, they're not merely us just documenting things. They are instructing us on what to care about. In his fascinating 1995 book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, that's a mouthful. Author James Lowen, who actually began his, his, his career as a history professor, in fact, he wrote a history textbook himself, wrote that he often would start his semesters by asking his students to identify 10 historical figures from the founding of our country. So anything in the period of the 1700s, name 10 historical figures. They'd start writing down and he'd go, but... They can't be politicians or statesmen, and they can't be military leaders. And then instantly, everyone goes, well, I don't know if I could come up with 10 people on that list. And the number one that came up, does anyone have an idea who was the number one person everyone wrote down? Betsy Ross. I heard someone say it. Betsy Ross was the number one that most people would come up with. Is That's someone who's not a statesman, not a politician, not a military leader. Now, if you're like me, you probably have the same thought, which is, well, of course no one remembers someone from 300 years ago who wasn't a political leader or some kind of military leader because those are the people who make history. Those are the people who do things that really matter and those are the things we write down and keep track of. They're the most influential people. Lowen's point, though, is that that is mostly true because of who we choose to remember. These are the people we choose to highlight and value as important, but that history, we all know this, is made and influenced by people from all walks of life. That, that people influence history in all different kinds of ways. And a recent example to prove this point uh, is the film that came out just before the pandemic, came out like 2019, I think, 
Uh, it was called Hidden Figures. You guys have seen this movie. Uh, it's a great movie, very inspirational. A lot of people love it. About It highlights three African-American women during the 1960s space race that had this tremendous impact on the success of the Apollo missions, yet were mostly forgotten by history, and not because they did not make an impact, not because they did not have an influence. It's a value statement. Now, you can disagree with Lowen's argument about what we choose to remember and why we choose to remember political and military leaders as the most influential people in history. There is one thing, though, I think that you cannot deny. The most influential person to ever live Never held a political office. Never had a military victory. Never wrote a book. Never had a movement that really got outside of about a few hundred people while he was alive. Yet every person living today has been affected by his life. And you probably know that I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And what's interesting is you might go, well, every person living has been affected by his life. And especially if you're not sure you believe all that we do, you think that might be a little bit too much of an absolute statement. Every person has been influenced, but the way I used to once again say it to teenagers all the time is, well, think about it this way. What year is it? What year is it? That even if you choose not to follow the uh, kind of older BC, AD model of dating things, if you go with the more current CE, BCE model, you have to ask yourself the question, why did this current era begin 2,023 years ago? What happened within history that fundamentally shaped and changed things that it decided we've got to define history in two different eras? And I'm not trying to ignore the fact, effects of things like colonization or how the church in the Western world eventually did gain power. I'm trying to bring up this idea. The most influential person who has shaped more of Western society, more of what we consider modern political thought, most of our ideas around human rights, which were not considered rights when he walked the earth, was not an author, he was not a politician, he was not a military leader. He was a poor Jewish carpenter who went around an impoverished area of ancient Palestine, which was at that time occupied by the Roman Empire, and he preached about a kingdom that was not of this world, and he was killed as a criminal. And it, he, any other would-be Messiah of his day, but somehow his life, his death, and what his followers at least claimed was his resurrection, launched a movement that within 300 years took it from being the most oppressed group within ancient Rome to the most prominent religious group in ancient Rome, and not because they won any military battles, not because they got the right person into office, not because they got a lot of wealth and power in the world. In fact, the majority of his followers were either poor themselves, or if they had wealth, they would willingly choose to give that wealth to serve and love others. And don't take my word for this. In fact, a secular historian, I bring him up all the time because his name is Tom Holland and he's not the Spider-Man guy. He wrote a, a book that's entitled Dominion. And this book is about how Christianity shaped the Western world. He himself does not believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Yet he cannot deny the fact that he, as a person growing up in the Western world, his ideas about life have been more shaped by Jesus than what he thought as a historian, shaped by Plato and Aristotle. And in fact, more shaped by the followers of Jesus 
who took Jesus seriously on what he said to do than any other source. And it's because of an impact of a group of poor, oppressed people following a crucified Jewish carpenter who lived in an insignificant part of this world. And here's why I bring this up to kind of start what we're talking about for today. First, well, this is the King Jesus gospel we're talking about. Jesus is the center of everything. This is the gospel. It's the good news of all history. It's the good news of our lives. It's what we just sang about. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is the king of all kings. The reason we have a unified dating system that is based around his life is because in ancient history, you dated things based on whoever was the king at the time. That's why you read all these ancient things and they'll say, in the year of king so-and-so's reign, in the third year of this person, you would always date it by that. But eventually, Christians began to say, well, we, we only have one king. And so we're going to date everything based on the year of our Lord. This is the year of our Lord. He is the king of all kings. Because of Jesus, a new era, a new kind of life has begun. Because he's the king of all kings, and he is all that matters, he has invited us into his kingdom, where we can join him in the work he is doing to bring about a new kind of world, a new kind of life, what Jesus called his new creation. That from his resurrection, this began to break forth into our world. That justice could be brought to the oppressed and healing brought to the afflicted and hope given to the hopeless and we can invite others to share in the goodness and life of God's kingdom that Jesus King Jesus is retaking every inch of this world for his glory and we are invited to participate with him in the work he's doing and that's the second reason I bring this up because the way that we go about bringing this kingdom of God to our world will often seem to many of us as small and insignificant. It's not the kind of thing that's going to make a history textbook. When we talk about participating with God in his kingdom, we're not talking about taking our country back for Jesus or winning battles in some kind of culture war that we've brought in our mind or somehow extending America's influence across the world. We're not talking about forcing other people to listen to things from a Christian point of view. We're not talking about some kind of big gesture. Jesus did not come back from the dead and say, all power and authority has been given to me, so I don't know, post more Christian memes on Facebook or something. That'll do it. He didn't say, you know what all you need to do? Go get a bullhorn, go get a a piece of street that you can go and just start getting a big crowd in front of you. The goal is not to somehow get... A message out there. We're not asking you to take the invite cards for our Easter extravaganza you're going to have next week and just go plaster them all over the county. It's not about getting in front of the most people and getting the message out. Even when we say, like we did earlier in the service, that we want you to be praying about who God might be leading you to invite to our Easter events that are coming up. We're not asking you to preach a sermon. We're not asking you to be ready to debate someone about your beliefs or somehow force it down someone's throat, which may disappoint some of you. And if so, good. Good. But for most of you, I hope what that does is actually brings you relief. Because joining Jesus in his work and this bringing the life of the kingdom to every inch of our world, it is not as flashy or as grand as you might think it is. Maybe we even would like it to be because it'd just be easier if we could just say something and everyone gets it. 
Jesus said it was like a farmer going out to scatter seeds in a field. Did you notice he said the farmer has no idea why some seeds grow, some flourish, and others, they don't seem to. He says it's kind of like a mustard seed. Because it's the smallest of all seeds, and somehow it, it grows into this massive plant. He says, he's trying to get you to imagine, how could this possibly happen? Because what Jesus knew at the time, I think, would be easy to know is what we know, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. That Jesus is trying to use hyperbole to get us to imagine something small growing into something so enormously large that you couldn't even imagine it. It seems almost like magic. In other parables, he says it's like a woman kneading yeast into 60 pounds of flour. I had never noticed that before, but I've, I started baking over the, uh, the, the pandemic. And uh, 60 pounds of flour is a lot of flour. That's a lot of flour. He says he's, he's kneading yeast into 60 pounds of flour. What he's trying to get you to see is just a little tiny thing. And there's nothing you can do to make it grow fast. There's nothing you can do to make it grow bigger. You're, it's going to take this slow, patient process, this small act that you just do consistently over and over again. And, and the soil is going to determine whether the seed grows. The yeast has to have the time and the action and its own patience to just grow. That it has to have its own thing. And today, I want to talk about what that looks like for us. Jesus used parables as a way to explain his activity and ministry in the world. And this is what Jesus is doing when he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Up to this point in his ministry, Jesus had been going town to town, healing people, casting out demons, and proclaiming that God's kingdom was coming through him. But I'm sure it was confusing to the disciples and the Pharisees who were watching him to wonder, why doesn't he stay longer in any town and build up a bigger following? Why does he heal some people and then tell them not to preach about him, but cast out demons from this other guy and tell him to go tell others all about him? It must have seemed random, like there was no plan. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like a farmer who scatters seed, and he has no control which seeds sprout and grow. All by itself, the soil produces grain. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Jesus is saying, my work is not random. It's just the work of farming. I'm scattering the seeds of the kingdom, and the some will accept it and others will not. And then he goes on to another parable about seeds. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Nearly all scholars point out a few things about this parable. First, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on earth, nor is the mustard plant the largest of all garden plants. Sure, it's a tall plant, but it's thin like most weeds, and it isn't sturdy enough for birds to perch on, and Jesus and his audience probably knew that at the time. So most likely, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's making this grand, almost ridiculous statement to make their imaginations wander into the realm of what seems impossible. He's using this idea that they do understand. Large things grow from small things. Big plants begin as tiny seeds. And he's bringing this kind of magical realism to it. The smallest seed growing to become this plant that is unnaturally large, enough so that birds could perch in a weed as if it were a tree. 
Now it's important to mention that many scholars believe that Jesus' use of birds is an intentional callback to the ancient Hebrew scriptures written by the prophet Daniel. In Daniel's writings, the birds were an analogy for the foreign nations outside of Israel. It was this prophetic image of all people, not just the people of Israel, being brought into God's kingdom. And it's possible that what Jesus is doing is saying that one day the kingdom of God will grow so large that people from every nation will find life in his kingdom. But this will not happen all at once. It will happen through the scattering of seeds, and it will take time and patience for the kingdom to spread and grow. And Jesus is trying to explain his ministry. I mean, think about how scandalous it is to human beings who value power and fame and having a big public impact that the God of the universe would live as a traveling homeless carpenter and use most of his influence on a small group of disciples. And occasionally when he would have large crowds following, he'd say things that seemed designed to drive some of them away. It doesn't make sense because it's not the way we go about changing the world. We want big movements and crowds and eventually a following and donors and armies to change the world. But Jesus seemed interested in the small things, the poor, the sick, the powerless, and his impact seemed small, but toward the end of his life, Jesus would talk to his followers about his death and he'd say, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is the mustard seed that must be planted to produce a plant large enough for the whole world to take shelter under. Jesus' death and resurrection became the seed that brought the life of God's kingdom to the world. And it's this kingdom that throughout history has produced many seeds, men and women who have joined Jesus in his work of giving their lives away for the sake of his kingdom. In that same conversation where Jesus was speaking about his death and compared his own life to like a seed that was going to be planted, die, and then grow, Jesus also told his followers, I want you to follow the same example. See, following Jesus is the process of us laying down our lives as well so that we can die to ourselves, find new life, and then, of course, share that life with other people. So the question I want us to, to wrestle down right now is this. What keeps you from fully giving your life away to join Jesus in his work? Is it fear? Is it a desire in your life that you're just not ready to give up on yet? Maybe there's a dream you have or an ambition, and if you're honest, you would say, yeah, it takes up pretty much all my time and all my attention. And that's what I'm focused on. Would you just take a few moments and ask God in these few moments of quiet we're about to have to reveal to you what is holding you back from joining Jesus in that kingdom work? Now, before we spend some time doing that, I want us to read the words of Jesus together. It is, as it's become part of our tradition around here, you're going to see some words on the screen. Part of those words are going to be in bold. And I want to invite you as I read to read the words in bold out loud along with me. Let's begin. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, 
Would you ask God to show you how he is calling you to follow Jesus' example in your life? Do that in these moments of quiet. Now, once again, let's read these words of Jesus. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now take a few moments of quiet, and I want you to commit to God to follow Jesus by laying down your life in whatever area that he has helped you identify today. Father in heaven, would you help us to see True life is found in following Jesus' example. Help us to give our lives away to your kingdom for the sake of the people all around us. May we honor you and be a blessing to those around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the question that we want to look at is, what does it look like for us to join this small, slow work of God's kingdom? I think it actually begins with a principle that I learned from a uh, much more clever pastor uh, named Andy Stanley, and he put it this way. He said, to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Here's what I mean. We all know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, you may not even believe in God, but you have this inherent should within you. Things shouldn't be this way. Things should be better. People should treat each other better than this. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know that God did not intend the world to be this way, that we are part of a grand story that is much bigger than us and our own lives, which is why, as Jason has already talked about, Molly's already talked about, we can give our lives away like seeds being planted because the story is not about us, but that the story began long before us and will continue on, that there was a God who made this world the way that it should be, and we messed it up. But Jesus is making all things new and right and beautiful, and he invites us to get to be a part of that. But if you're like me, it often feels overwhelming at times to look at things in this world and think, well, what could I even do? What really could one person do? What could one even community, one church really do to make a dent in the problem? And maybe it might even starts to feel a little hopeless and you don't even want to do anything. But there's been a phrase we've been saying around here all the time that some of you already know is we can't do everything, but we can do something. You can do something. You could do for one person what you wish you could do for every person. This is the idea behind this. Could you identify one cause? 
or one community or one person that you say, I could invest my life there. You could serve. You could pray for that person like they were your own child. You could care for them like you wish every person could be cared for. Every community could be cared for. Could you take on this principle of the mustard seed and say, I'll start small. I'll join the kingdom work and it may just be one action after another action, slow and consistent like kneading yeast into 60 pounds of flour. It's too big of a problem for one person to handle, but I can knead for a little bit. I can do my part. And so as a church these days, we're beginning to look forward to these Easter celebrations, Easter Sunday and our Easter extravaganza on the Sunday before. And we're asking you to pray, hey, who might God be calling you to share an invitation to? And maybe this seems very out of character for you. And so you just write the whole thing off. Or maybe you've had experiences in the past that have told you, well, maybe this isn't really for me. Or, or maybe you're not even sure what reason you would invite anyone to anything anyway. Maybe it kind of feels, if you're skeptical, and I'm a little skeptical myself, it just feels like, what's well, this some church growth strategy thing? You're just trying to fill seats. So let me help you see why this matters. We've been saying this a while around here, but it's important to repeat it. As a church, we believe people are living deeply disconnected lives. Meaning they're disconnected from God, and maybe you don't even believe in God, and so you don't see why that really matters, but here's how you might be able to identify many people and we see a lot of research that says this are living lives that they feel are just insignificant and my life doesn't really matter like maybe it is too small or maybe life at all doesn't matter maybe there's really no meaning behind this they feel insignificant they think no one really cares about them or sees them and not because they haven't been successful which is often our solution. Well, you just need to get out there and try something. It's not because they haven't accomplished their, their dreams or their goals. In fact, one of the loneliest feelings you can experience is when you get everything you thought you wanted and it wasn't enough. When you got the job, you got the spouse, you got the house, you got the money, you got the respect, you got the admiration, and there still was this deep emptiness. And the emptiness becomes even deeper. Then. Becomes even harder to deal with. This is why I do think it is dangerous to say to kids over and over again, the, the greatest good you can do is just go be yourself because what happens when you go and you finally find yourself and you aren't enough? Because you aren't enough. And you look at your life and then you get to the end of it and you say, well, what, what is this? In fact, this feeling just continues to cycle down and this is be the reason this is is because our only true meaning and significance, the way Jason said it earlier, is quoting Jesus said, the truly rich and satisfying life, a full and abundant life, or a good and a pleasing life, is only found in Jesus. When we are connected to the God who made us and loves us, that life is found in Jesus. People aren't just connect, disconnected from God. When you get disconnected from God, you end up disconnecting from other people as well. You disconnect from yourself. What we mean is that people end up not living in healthy and flourishing ways. I was just checking this before I came on to make sure it was right. Uh, Coweta County, our median income is significantly higher than the national median income for households. We're doing well. 
but we are also higher, and we've said this before, than the national average of risk for opioid addiction. Our county is higher than the national average of being at risk for opioid addiction. Mental health issues like anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts have accelerated in the last decade. No matter what someone's outside life looks like, people are struggling within themselves and also in their connection to others. We live in this global loneliness epidemic that was bad enough before, but then the pandemic just accelerated it to the most recent one I saw says two out of every five Americans say they have zero meaningful relationships in their life. 40% of people that you meet would say, I have zero meaningful relationships. It doesn't mean they don't know people. In fact, you've experienced this before. You can be in a room. Maybe you're experiencing this right now. You're in a room of crowded people and you feel lonelier than ever. Because there is no relationship in your life that feels like it gives your life meaning, like it matters to you and that you matter to them. Our county is higher than the national average for marriages at risk. Every person I seem to meet when I talk to them and you get to know them enough, you know that thing where it always, kind of the old phrase of everyone is normal until you get to know them. Everyone seems healthy and put together and then you, then you get to know them. So many people I know, they seem to have some relational mess in their life with a family member, with a friend. Often it's with a child. Families are in crisis in our world. In the last few years, the number of children that are born to single parents has risen to 40%. Maybe your heart breaks for single moms or single dads because you were raised by a single mom or a single dad or you were a single mom or a single dad and you know how difficult that is, and the struggle and the loneliness that goes into that, and you feel it, and you want to do something about it. People are living lives that are disconnected from God and from themselves and from other people, but there is a solution, church. It's discipleship to Jesus. It's Jesus. There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Life in God's kingdom, life with God, a community of people who would choose to say, we will give our lives away to Jesus for the sake of others. It's powerful. This is why Jesus sent his disciples out, as we talked about last week, to be a blessing into the world. Jesus does not just call us to be disciples. He calls us to go and make disciples. And here's the good news. One thing the pandemic did not change is, you're going all the time. You go. You already got the going part down. You're going all the time, right? You're going to work. You're not happy about it, but you're going to work. You're going to drop your kids off at school because you've had them with you for a full week. They're getting there early tomorrow, right? You're going to the grocery store and going to the ball field, and some of you are going to the gym, and you're going online to yell at people, and you're going to do your taxes at some point, you're going to get around to it. I believe in you. You're going to get around to it. You're going to do it. You're already on the go. So what Jesus is saying is, as you go, make disciples. Everywhere you go, scatter seeds for my kingdom. And how do you do that? It's by living in the kingdom. It's just by you being a disciple of Jesus. Because life in the kingdom is about living like Jesus in this world. 
It's about being kind and generous and others focused. It's like Jason has already said, it's giving your life away like a seed being planted in the ground so that other seeds could grow. What does that mean? It means you give up making your life about you. It means you give up your going to being about what you were going there to accomplish. Your going no longer is just about you going around getting done the things you had already planned to get done. Your going becomes like a seed for the kingdom of God. You no longer just go to the store to get groceries. But you go as a seed open to what God might do in the lives of people that are around you because everyone else is going to the grocery store. You no longer go to the gym to mostly sit on your phone and pretend like you're working out. You go in the name of Jesus, in the likeness of Jesus. You no longer go to your kid's school to complain to some teacher about the grades that they rightfully earned, but you don't think they did, which none of you did. None of you would do. I believe that. You don't just go for those reasons. You go in the name, in the character, in the likeness of Jesus. Everywhere you go, you go in Jesus' name. In, as, a, as a representative of his kingdom, you go to serve. You go to love for the sake of the people who are also going there. And they are living disconnected from God and themselves and others. And I know that already sounds overwhelming. And honestly, if you hear it, it sounds impractical. It sounds like, well, I don't, I don't know if I could do that everywhere I go. So I'm not asking you to work, worry about everywhere. I'm not asking you to worry about everyone. I just want you to start with one. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Could you pick one place that you go and you choose to say, every time I go to this place, I give up my agenda. I give up my reason for coming here. And I will look for where God is at work. So I want to challenge you this week. Would you pick just one place? Pick one place and that you would pray every time you go there, God, open my eyes to see where you might be. God, open my ears to hear the people around me. God, would you open my hands that I would be ready to give my life away for the sake of others. That I would give up my agenda for coming here. I would give up my reason, the thing I wanted to accomplish in such a way that I could love and serve others. And you start looking and you start listening to see if God is opening doors and opening opportunities. Maybe he's opening relationships that you had completely ignored before in that environment for you to bless someone who is around you. So is there someone that God is calling you to serve? Is there someone God is calling you to invest in? Someone he wants you to get to know? And then you just identify, who's my one person? I've got my one place. Who's my one person that God is drawing me towards? Who is my one person that I could just spend some time with? Who I could get to know? Who I could ask enough questions and know enough about their life that I could actually see what God might be doing in their life? And then I could join God in blessing that person just as he has blessed me. Because you cannot do everything that needs to be done in our country. You cannot do everything that needs to be done in our county or in your school or at your job or in your neighborhood. But you could do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. What you wish you could see happen in every family. You could start doing for one family. What you wish could happen for everyone in our country, you could do for one person. You could do for one community. 
You could get involved. You could pray every day at your office or as you pull in your neighborhood or as you sit at your kid's ball practice. If, if you're a, a teen that's here, every time you go to school, maybe you decide I'm going to show up five minutes early for school or that's already a no-go. I get that. Show up, five, say, five minutes later at school and just pray every day. God, would you use me? God, would you bless the people who are here, who are all around me? Would you do something that is so powerful that it would be undeniable that you did it or that you did it through me? Could you do for one person, have one conversation, share one kind word a day, give one gift? Maybe you could invite a coworker over for dinner or take them out for lunch. Maybe it's walking over to someone that you've never met before and just introduce yourself. Maybe it's asking a question so you can learn more about someone. I don't know what it is. Here is what I believe. That as you prayerfully seek to join God, you might see that he's been opening opportunities all around you. That he's been giving you one place one person, one thing you could do. And maybe he'll open a door for you eventually to share more than a word. But it, maybe it will be an invitation to church or to just share your story about what God has done for you. But it's going to start small. It's going to be like a mustard seed. And the goal is not to have some big Easter service. I want to make that clear. The goal is not because we want to have some big Easter event. Just to let you in on it, the reason that we really focus around these times on Easter and we have our fall festival and our Christmas Eve service is that we know it is really important for us as a church in the busyness of all the things that we do as people that all of us would get focused around for a period of time. God did not just bless me for me. God did not just save me for me. People are living lives disconnected from God disconnected from themselves, disconnected from others, but there is a solution and his name is Jesus. And we know that. And we know it. Maybe that seems like a lot and you're not sure you believe all we do, but you also can start small. You could take one step today. If as we've been kind of speaking and worshiping and praying, you have just felt something and you don't know if you'd even call it God, but you, you feel something drawing you towards him or drawing you towards a different life, would you consider going to the Next Step Center after service, signing up for that Next Steps class? You're not committing to anything. You're saying, I want to investigate what life with God in this community could look like. I hope you will. And I hope everyone starts to consider as we're preparing for Easter, what's your one place? Who's your one person that God has put around you for a reason? We say all the time here on Sundays, you're not here by accident. You're nowhere by accident. God is active. He is moving. He goes before you. He goes behind you. Would you just join him in what he's calling you to do? And to give us time to think about that, I've asked Jason to come out and lead us in a time of prayer.